The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. It is an honor to be together, worship the Lord, and then to come before His Word. Such a joyful and a sober thing. So let's pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would help us as we come before His Word together. Our Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, you're a personal God, Uh, you want to be known, and those who know you, truly know you, they worship you, they love you, they want to follow you and serve you, so Lord, we want to be those people, Uh, we pray for ourselves as we come before your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would fill us and just help us, Lord, give us open eyes, listening ears, soft hearts, I pray you'd help me to teach this passage faithfully, please, Lord. Help us all to understand what you're calling us towards and help us walk that path and follow you. And Lord, let our worship of you be joyful. Let it be pleasing in your sight. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's passage asks the question, what is acceptable worship? What's acceptable worship? And I was just pondering that how in our cultural moment today, that just Seems like almost a strange question. Um, I think it's easy, maybe, for people today just assume that God is lucky to have us worshiping at all. Um, And of course, we'll worship, right, when it fits in our schedule. We'll, We'll worship according to our preferences. So then we then we ask, what is acceptable worship? What does that mean? Let's, let's try to define our terms. First, worship. The root idea behind this word worship here is to serve. It just reminds us worship is really how you serve the God you trust in. And as we consider this, we remember, it. well, everybody worships something. Yeah, that's right. Everybody worships something. Everyone puts his or her faith in something. What's faith? Faith is that the heart's reliance, right, on an object for the sake of happiness. Put my faith in this thing for the sake of happiness. And of course, as we've seen in Hebrews, faith obeys. You're going to follow that thing you're trusting so deeply. Faith serves, oh yes, because faith worships. So what is acceptable worship? Acceptable, that that word means pleasing. Pleasing to whom? Pleasing to whom? You know, there there are always voices in kind of the church at large that want to form worship mainly to please the crowd. It's kind of this model of thinking of church as like a business and the, the crowd is the customer so you've got to please your customer. You tailor your product to please your customers. You can get more customers and be a successful business, right? Isn't that how we ought to do church? And so worship then should mainly be pleasing to the crowd. And as you can imagine, there's some, there's some dangers if you accept that idea about worship. Uh, now, I want to be careful here, okay? So first, let me just tell you. I actually want 
our worship together to be enjoyable to you, okay? I hope, I hope, I hope it is. It is for me. It's not like my goal or our goal as a church is to be like, make sure nobody here is pleased, you know? It's not, let's be awkward. Let's make the sermon long and tedious. No, that's not the goal. We, we want this to be a pleasant time together for sure, but, but what do we want most? Who are we out to please the most? What is worship for? And so you can see how if you want to please the crowd, and I don't care what, what crowd it is you want to please, because there's lots of different crowds. But if you want to please the crowd, there's going to be certain people you don't want to confront, certain things you don't want to say, certain, certain groups you don't want to oppose. There's going to be some human agenda, but you're going to form everything to meet that crowd's expectation, whoever that crowd is. And before you know it, you're worshiping a God of public opinion whether it's left, right, or center, this theology or that theology, if it's a human crowd you're after, you're not worshiping to please people. That's a dangerous thing. It's an awful thing. But also it just misses out on the incredible privilege of genuine worship. Because you, you think about where this is going. Do you mean the Bible is saying to you that God would communicate him in such a way and invite you near so you could see and worship him, and he would take pleasure in that? When you think about it like that, this is just epic. What, what would be greater than to see and know God and to be brought near to him and offer him the kind of worship where he says, I love that? I mean, that's, that's the best. That's heaven. So we're continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. Like I've said, the point of this passage today is how to offer acceptable worship. And this morning, we're going to see four, four core aspects of acceptable worship, four core aspects. And of course, these are going to be, in many ways, a correction to us. It's, it's always a correction. It draws us back to where we're supposed to be. But it's also a gift to us. It's a gift to know how to worship God in a way that's pleasing to him. So let's begin, let's just start here in verse 25 where we're starting, and I think you'll see the first point develop. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So uh, who's, who's speaking in this case? It's, it's a, at least you should say God is speaking, right? God is speaking, and what should we not do? As we hear God speak, don't refuse him. What would that mean? That would, that would mean to have the idea or the truth he's communicating go through your ears, into your brain, you're pondering it, and then you go, nope. That's what it would mean to refuse him. Don't do that. As you hear him speak and the truth goes into your brain, how should your heart respond? Yes. Yes, I grab that. I submit to that. I believe that. Don't refuse him who is speaking. But there's a couple of truths here to, to notice. How do we know it's acceptable worship to God? How do we know? A lot of people have said a lot of different things about that. How do we know? Of course, the only answer is going to be, you can only know if he tells you. And 
where has he told you? He's told you in his word. The Bible, the inspired word of God, is our standard and source for knowing how to worship him. So true worship is not something we invent or create based on our, our preferences. Uh, we're, we're, not, we're, we're listening to him, and we're not, ref, we're not refusing what he's saying. We're embracing it. Second thing to see now, just in this verse, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's amazing. The author of Hebrews has done this many times and in many ways. But he's, his claim continually has been, when we look at those Old Testament texts written to those people a long time ago in a land far, far away, when we listen to those texts, guess what's happening? God is speaking to you right now. And in fact, the author of Hebrews would say, as you consider this letter I have written you, this audience, he would say to them, God is speaking to you right now. And here's what blows me away. I think a lot of pastors are too cavalier with this, but this is the truth. If I preach this passage to you faithfully, what's happening right now? God is speaking. Now have mercy on me, right? I humble myself. It's not because of how smart or strong or anything I might be. It has nothing to do with it really, right? It's this gift God gives to his church that when preachers try to faithfully explain and proclaim the truth of the Bible, God is speaking. Which means as we come here, right, it's just, and so we're, we're such normal people, a normal place. We're just, but as we come here together, do you realize what's happening? God is here in our midst, and He is speaking. Wow. You can just feel the sobriety of that, the awe of that. He's speaking when we come together to hear Him. So don't refuse Him. Don't refuse him. Listen carefully and don't refuse him. Well, that, that, of course, that always pertains to every text we ever look at. God is speaking. Don't refuse him. But now we ask specifically in, in this context, in what way is this audience tempted to refuse the message that God is giving to them? What, what does the author have in mind? And we, and we remember as we've been studying through Hebrews, this audience was tempted due to distraction, due to suffering, due to discouragement, this audience was tempted to abandon their loyalty to and worship of Jesus Christ. They were tempted to abandon that and leave that. It's an, it's an audience of Jewish Christians. They were tempted to leave loyalty to and worship of Jesus to go back to worship according to the Mosaic law. Let's just go back to the temple in Jerusalem, Levitical priests, those sacrifices. Let's leave Jesus and go back. Why would they do that? Because the worship of Jesus was causing suffering and pain. There's persecution, there's marginalization. So, so this audience is tempted to look away from Jesus. And in that specific way, that's the specific idea the author is saying, don't refuse him who is speaking. And so now we come to the core essential ingredient on worship that is pleasing to God. And uh, all, the, all the rest of these points are important, but this is foundational. This is it. The only worship that is pleasing to God 
is worship that occurs through faith in Jesus Christ. Worship that does not look to Jesus Christ for righteousness, for salvation, for forgiveness. Worship that doesn't come to the Father through the Son is not acceptable to the Father. And on the flip side, no matter all your mistakes and foolishness and and messes you've made and difficulties and doubts and all the things that make you a normal struggling human being, if you come to the Father through Jesus Christ, guess what? You are accepted. You are pleasing. So let's work through the text and see how the author here is, uh, is coming up with this statement. Number one, don't refuse him who is speaking. If you look in the nearby context, you see in verse 24... We're supposed to look to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. There's a new and better way to come to God, and it's the only way. It's through Jesus. And and verse 24 said that Jesus' blood speaks. Jesus' blood speaks. Of course, it's symbolic about the meaning of what Jesus has done in his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, all the rest. His blood, the fact that he died for you, speaks. It says, this is the way to worship a holy God. Trust yourself to Jesus. Look to him and what he's done for you on the cross. That's how you know, that's how you can trust, believe that you're forgiven, that you've been adopted, that you're a child of God, that you're welcome in God's presence. Don't refuse the message of the gospel. Don't look away from that. So let's just, let's just pause here for a moment. Are any of you still saying that the reason I'm right with God, the reason I'm going to go to heaven when I die, the reason I'm acceptable is because I'm a good person? Is anyone still believing that in here? It's the most common religion that's ever existed. I'm a good person, and it's a false religion because you're using the wrong standard. It's not God's holy standard of his law. When we, when we come before the truth of his word, we realize I have not loved God with all my heart. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I'm not right with God on my own. How do I come in then and offer acceptable, pleasing worship? And this is the answer. Listen to the blood of Jesus. God's the love of the world. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Don't refuse him. Trust him here. This is what makes worship pleasing. It's a a focus on, a trust in Jesus Christ. You could look through Hebrews. Uh, I'll just read this to you. We don't have time to unpack this at all. But remember, in 25 here, he just said, don't refuse him who is speaking. Let me take you back real quick to Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 3. This idea that God is speaking. Listen to what God has said. Just take it in as we read this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Amen. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, that's his son, that's Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the word. 
The majesty of Jesus and who he is. The son of God who took on flesh, saves us from our sin, brings us to the Father. Don't refuse him. Trust him. Love him. Acceptable worship happens through faith in Jesus. And that brings to two implications here in these, in these verses we're going to look at now. There's a warning and a promise. A warning and a promise. And it's always like that when you hear the word of God, isn't it? It's a scary thing to go to church. Not just because people can be strange or awkward. Not you, obviously. I'm thinking about others. Um, No, we we come to church with real people, right? It's a way to love. We'll see that here in a moment. But it's a scary thing to come to church mainly because you're going to hear God speak and now you're responsible for what you do with that. You're going to hear us speak, and you're responsible for what you do with that. And so we see these two implications. Uh, verse 25, Hebrews 12, 25. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So in context, the author, right, he's been, he's been looking at the law and the gospel. Uh, we, we saw recently he was looking at how God came down on that mountain and gave the law through Moses to the people, right? And the mountain is shaking and trembling with this experience of God's presence and holiness in that place. And so he's looking back to that and he says, well, if they did not escape who refused him, and we remember, right? Israel heard, oh my goodness, they saw, wow, and yet they refused him. They didn't love him, they didn't worship him, they didn't follow him. And what happened as they were continuing in their idolatry and their rebellion, what happened? They did, well, let's put it like this. They did not escape. You can't escape the word of God. It's an eternal word. It will come to pass. You can't escape it. You know, in our everyday lives, right? It's not like when I disobey, I get like a little, a little zing on my hand or something. Oh, God's word's true. No, he's so patient, right? God is so patient. And in this evil age, it looks like you could deny God, forget God, rebel against God all day long, and nothing really ever happens. It's not because God's not paying attention. It's because he's patient. And you read through the scriptures, and one thing you'll see is the word of God will come to pass, and you cannot escape it. You, you will either enjoy the blessing of the word of God because you've trusted it or you will not escape the word of God because you refused it but the word of God will happen to you if if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven and so in context here, the rejection would be, I mean, the author of Hebrews has said to this audience over and over again from the scriptures, he has said, Christ alone. He has said, eyes on Christ. He said, the only way to be right with God and to know him and to receive all the blessing of God's promises is Christ. Don't leave Christ, cling to Christ, look to Christ, be encouraged by Christ, but hang on to Christ. He's been speaking from heaven as they have encountered this word, and if they do not receive that word of trusting in Christ, they will not escape, and neither will we. So that's one side of it. See what he's saying? God has offered his son. 
You think of all Jesus is, how God worked history to point to his son, all that Jesus has done. There's no one like him. All that he offers to look at him and go, no. God's not happy with that. It's not acceptable. So you just see this first humongous statement. What makes worship acceptable? Faith in Christ. Looking to Christ. And then you see the, the other side of that coin. We said there was two implications. One is that warning. But now we get this wonderful promise as well. And here it's kind of a complicated argument. So let's try to unpack it together. Look at 12, verse 26. The, the writer says, At that time his voice shook the earth. So again, just in, con- in context, what's, what's the writer thinking about? At that time. What time? It's the time when God came down and gave his people the law through Moses. And yeah, it shook the earth. Okay. Then the writer says, verse 26, But now he has promised. There's a new promise. A, a, new, a new voice you really need to listen to and not refuse. Now he has promised, and then he gives this quote, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What? (laughs) What do you mean? And then he makes this implication, verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken cannot may remain. And how many of you are like, I totally got that. Let's move on. Yeah. Okay. So there's going to be a shaking, right? And it uses, it uses big language. Heavens, everything's going to be shaken. But specifically, what he means is things that have been made are going to be shaken. What does this mean? Well, we, we know at that time, he's talking about the giving of law, God's voice shook the earth, but now there's a new promise. And we, and we see here, you know, he's quoting from the prophet Haggai. So let's look in context at what that was about. By the way, that's always what we should do, right? You get a little reference to an Old Testament passage, go read that. It's going to help you, okay? So let's read what, what is in the author's mind here as he quotes from Haggai. Haggai 2, 6 to 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. That adds a lot, right? So we see the shaking. It feels like everything is shaken, but we realize it's somewhat symbolic, isn't it? It's somewhat symbolic because in a way the nations are being shaken, but the point of all of it is he's going to fill this house with glory. What's the house? The temple. The temple. He's going to fill the temple with glory. And in fact, all nations are going to come in with their treasure and devote themselves to this glorious temple. How does that pertain to the context here? Well, it has everything to do with the context. What do you do at the temple? You worship. 
you worship. So something that's been made is going to be shaken. And there's going to be something left that's absolutely unshakable. And here we want to remember the context of Haggai, right? So this, this thing about shaking, unshaken, it's about the glory of the temple and the worship of the people of God. That's what it's about. Remember the context of Haggai. Haggai is about the rebuilding and the renewal of the temple after exile. So remember the story of the people of Israel. Israel had, had some wonderful times, but fell into idolatry, uh, and the word of God overtook them, right? And they, uh, Babylon came and wrecked them, and they were taken into exile. And it looks like all of God's promises are done and hopeless. It's over. Miraculously, just as God promised, a group returns back to the promised land. It's a small group. It's kind of a pitiful group. And they start to rebuild the temple. And so it's like this bittersweet time where God's amazing promises are coming true, but only so far. The temple they're building is small. In fact, the people, the old, the old guys who remember the last temple, there's a crowd of people celebrating that this new temple is being built, and the old guys are crying because they're thinking, this is great that God brought us back, but this is pathetic. And you think of the context of the time that the people of Israel are still under the reign of foreign nations. They're struggling. That Zechariah, we're studying him on Wednesdays, he has to date his prophecies by the reign of a Persian king. That's just wrong, right? It should be dated by the reign of a king in the line of David. And so there's this bittersweet sort of but not really as if God was only sort of keeping his promises. And so the people at the time of Haggai are like, when? Is, is this it? Is this all we have? And God gives them the promise we read. Just wait in a little while. In a little while, I'm going to shake everything up. And the temple will be filled with glory and all nations will come to worship. When does that happen? When does that happen? Did it happen with Haggai's temple? No. You got to wait a couple hundred years and you're still thinking, Lord, when's this going to happen? Then you get to the time of Jesus. There was the Herodian temple. You think that's where this promise came true? Physically speaking, the Herodian temple was pretty amazing. It was beautiful, it was gorgeous. But we know from reading the Gospels, the worship there was corrupt. It was hypocritical. And certainly, you don't have the nation shaken coming to worship in the Herodian temple in any, in any amazing way or profound way. And now we look back, the Herodian temple got burnt down. Where's the temple filled with glory? Where all the nations are coming to worship. Hmm. Reminded me of the story in the Gospel of John, second chapter. It's that crazy story. Jesus weaves a whip and goes in and turns over tables because he's tired of the hypocritical, pathetic, self-righteous worship of the Herodian temple. And so he's, he's um, doing this kind of messianic act and, and acting as if he has authority over God's temple. And so as he does this, the leaders of the temple say, what gives you the right? They see what he's doing. They know he's claiming authority. They say, what gives you the right? This is what Jesus says. Look at John 2, 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, 
Three days I'll raise it up. You can imagine how incredulous they felt. It took us 46 years to build this temple. I mean, the stonework, the gold, the this, the that. It's an, it's an amazing thing. It took us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? You sound ridiculous. You have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. Except they missed something. Verse 21. And this shakes up everything. He was speaking about huh? the temple of his body. Scandalous for a Jewish audience. The temple is where you come under God's reign, under God's word, with God's priests and God's sacrifice. That's where you come to worship. And Jesus just said, what did he say? That's me. That's me. I'm the presence of God. I'm the priest. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews has been saying in great detail? I'm the priest, Jesus says. Moreover, Jesus says, I'm the priest who offers myself as the sacrifice. I'm the temple. The shaking started when Jesus came. The shaking happened when Jesus was on the cross. Come on, what happened to the earth itself as he was on the cross? It shook. What happened to the veil in the temple as he died on the cross? It was ripped in two. What used to be a barrier between people and the holiness of God has been taken down. You can now come into the temple in a new way. You can know God through Jesus Christ. And so we begin to see this phrase, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Friends, listen, what was this audience of Hebrews, what, what were they tempted to leave Jesus for? Worship in the temple according to the Mosaic law. And what is this author telling them? That has all been shaken off. That's no longer the temple. And if you think back to what he wrote in Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, when God promises the new covenant, he makes the first one, what? Obsolete. If Jesus is the priest, they aren't. If Jesus is the temple, that's not. If Jesus is the sacrifice, those aren't. Not only is the first one obsolete, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to what? Vanish away. And here's what raises the head on your neck, or the hair on your neck, I think. Hebrews most likely was written in the mid-60s. Jesus, if you remember, prophesied and foretold of the judgment on the temple in Jerusalem. When did that happen? 80, 70. Friends, these guys are a couple years away from that prophecy coming true with historical precision. That's being shaken. And all of that is a backdrop for, you know, don't rely on something that's going to be shaken. And here's the, the, the long argument we've been making to that 
that promise. Guess what you have if you have Jesus? You have the unshakable kingdom that can never pass away. You have the unshakable kingdom. We, we saw this earlier in this chapter. If you want to read it later, look at where we've come. If you start in 12, 22 to 24, we've come to, it's, it's all a descriptor of the way we've come to the presence of God. We've come to the real Jerusalem. We've come to the real temple. We've come to God's people truly saved. We've come into his presence, and this is ours forever, and nothing can take it away. Nothing can take it away. If you have Christ, nothing can take away your righteousness. If you have Christ, nothing can take away your forgiveness. If you have Christ, no, no one can take away your identity as a child of God. If you have Christ, no one can take away the reality that you're his and he's in control of your life to use even the dark spots for your good and his glory. If you have Christ, nothing can take away from you the fact that death is just a door now and you go straight to the presence of God. If you have Christ, nothing can take away from you the fact that you will rise from the dead literally and physically. And nothing can take away from you the reality that you will live on a renewed heavens and earth forever and ever and ever in perfect bliss and joy and happiness with the Lord and his people forever. It's unshakable. And it's yours. It's all yours in Christ. You see this incredible argument? He's just giving us in such great detail. You want to do acceptable worship? Do it through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's just so epic and humongous that if you refuse that, you will never escape. And if you embrace that, you are a member of an unshakable kingdom. So that's most of our time this morning because that's the most important point. And that's a point we love here at Fountain of Life. And it's a point I hope we make every single time we look at God's word together. The gospel is everything. It's everything. We love to emphasize Jesus and what he's done. And if you're in Christ, your worship is acceptable. It's the core principle. So let's worship in Christ. But there's more to say. How do we worship in Christ? There's implications for this. Now, here we go. On to our second point. You see verse 28. What word does 28 start with? Therefore. So if you're a Christian, you put your faith in Christ. If you worship God through him, if your hope is in that unshakable kingdom, if that's you, therefore, now let's follow it up with this. This is what Christian worship should look like. Therefore, let us be what? Grateful. Grateful. Christian worship should always be thankful. Should always be thankful. This will test you, right? This will test you. Anybody have a hard week? Are there any sorrows to be concerned about? Any devastating wickedness? that we've had to face? Doubts, fears, ugliness, evil, all the rest? Yes, yes, and yes. And you think of the audience of this, of this letter? Some of them had lost their property for being Christians. The author's gonna have to tell them in the end, hey, good news, Timothy got out of jail. They have friends in jail for being Christians. You think it's easy to have a dark day when your life's like that? Let us be what? 
grateful. Don't try to find your thankfulness in these circumstances only. Now, come on, let's be honest. Do you have anything in your circumstances to be thankful for? Have mercy. Thousands, right? Thousands. Count your blessings. It's a lot to be thankful for. But even on the day when you're like, nope, nothing. Okay, fine. If you're a Christian, guess what you have? You have an unshakable kingdom. You can't be taken. These sufferings here are light, light and momentary affliction, and you have eternal glory coming. You're gonna see his face. You're gonna be with God's people. You're gonna rise from the dead. Do you have an unshakable kingdom? Have you received it now? Is it occurring in your heart now? Is it in your community now? You have this now. It's unshakable. If you see what you have by grace alone, through faith alone, you will certainly be what? Grateful. In fact, let's just go ahead and say it. When you're unthankful, you forgot the gospel, didn't you? You just forgot it. You don't remember how much you have. I mean, what do you, ask your heart this. Heart, what do I deserve from a holy God? Right? I see it in your face. I feel that way too. What do I deserve from a holy God? Now ask your heart, heart, what has God given to me by grace alone, through faith alone? What's he given you? He's given you Jesus. See him and know him and have him. He's given you himself to be called your father. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you his people. He's given you the promise that for ages and ages, he's gonna lavish his kindness on you in a new heavens and a new earth forever. And you didn't deserve a shred of it. You deserve the opposite of it. Do you remember that? If you remember it, what's gonna come out of your heart? Thankfulness, thank you. Gosh, thank you. I didn't deserve it. Gratefulness, uh, gratitude, thankfulness. It's that joy of the heart that comes from seeing that somebody's just given you this lavish, massive gift you didn't deserve. And all you can do is just go, wow, thank you. Thank you. Our worship should be thankful. You know, especially to uh, reform theology. This is humongous. Because the, the life of a response to the gospel, right? We don't do good works to earn our salvation. We do good works because we are saved. And so this framework of, you know what? We ought to live in thanksgiving, this joyful gratitude to God. And that thanksgiving is going to show itself in a happy obedience. In fact, being thankful, knowing that you have this great inheritance, that gives you this safety and this confidence to risk in these small ways of obedience because you know you have everything you need. So consider Colossians 3, 17, for instance. Look how Paul thinks of this. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So when should you be thankful? Yep, okay. Which deeds should thanksgiving enhance in your life? That's right, all of them, all of them. So ponder, church, ponder. Right? When we come together to worship, it's huge, it's amazing. What should people see in us? What should we see in one another? Deep thanksgiving. So now let's all go ahead and repent a little bit. Right? Lord, forgive me when I'm full of self-pity, self-focus. I think I'm doing other people a favor by being here. It's not gratitude. It's not the gospel. When visitors come, do they see a, a thankful people? 
Are we thankful people? Let's worship the Lord with thanksgiving. That pleases the Lord. It's worship he likes. It's worship he enjoys. It's thankful because you believe his promises of what he's given you in Christ. Another thing to see, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with what? Reverence and awe. Reverence, awe, serious respect for who God is and a humble wonder at who he is. It is kind of amazing how we can just waltz into the presence of a holy God and be like, what's up, right? I mean, did we forget who this is? Come with reverence and awe. It's easy to have a lopsided view of God. It's so easy. Uh, Sometimes we think of holiness and we think, oh, there's no mercy or grace. No, that's that's not right. Or we think that God is loving, and then there's no holiness. And I, that's a modern trend, right? It's God's job to forgive. So it's like he forgot who he is if he ever gets angry at anything. Or he's, a, he's like this quivering mass of blind acceptance who just wants you to be, you, just do you. That is not God. And it's not love either, by the way. Look what the author reminds us of. The reason we want to come with reverence and awe is because our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. It's an illustration, obviously. Do you want to be casual with consuming fires? Sure, just light one. That's not what you do with consuming fires. And consuming fires, they take everything. So it's a huge, huge illustration throughout the Bible. It, it, it's basically looking at God's holiness, right? His self-sustaining life in need of nothing. His moral perfection, his hatred of evil. His sovereignty, you realize he holds you in his hand and there's no way out. His word will come true. Which part of, which part of his word do you want to come true for you? He's a consuming fire. And, and I think the author is thinking of, thinking of Deuteronomy 4. Look at Deuteronomy 4. Take care. What's a, what do those first two words mean? You want to be a little careful here. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. See, you're forgetting this relationship you have with him. You for, you're forgetting what it means to worship him. Take care you don't forget that, which he made with you. Take care you don't forget that by making a carved image. What's that a picture of? It's worshiping the idols of your culture. Worshiping the idols of your culture. Eyes off of Christ onto those things. Don't do that. Form, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God. The reason you should be careful. For your Lord your God is he can, he's a consuming fire. And then what does the text say about him? He's jealous. I both love this and I'm terrified of this. Right? And we speak of our human relationships. We know a lot of times jealousy That's a negative thing. It comes from coveting. It comes from not loving your neighbor. That's not what we're talking about here. There is a kind of jealousy that's good and important. And and the the best illustration for it is a covenant of marriage, a husband to a wife. A wife has every right to be jealous for her husband's devotion and affection. A husband has every right to be jealous for his wife's devotion and affection, appropriate to that covenant, appropriate to that vow. And if if that affection that belongs only to the spouse goes to somebody else, uh uh-uh. No, no, 
That's why the Bible calls idolatry harlotry. Because you're giving devotion to something that should only belong to God. God's a jealous God. He wants all of you, all the time, according to his word. And he is jealous that he gets that from you. So how should you worship? Reverence and awe. A a carefulness. A joyful carefulness, right? We've been told in Hebrews, "Come come with confidence to the throne for grace and mercy in time of need. But don't come just like, hey, what's up? Remember who this, whose throne this is. This is the God of the Bible. Come with reverence and awe. So this is a call, right, to examine our hearts on the way to worship. Examine your heart on the way to worship. Don't you know, right? Have you had those drives of utter frustration? You're frustrated with the people in your life. You're frustrated with the stress. It's like getting somewhere on time on Sunday mornings is like this vortex of impossibility, right? It's just every, your mind's on everything in the world, your task list, your concerns, how the world's going, all these concerns. And I'm, I'm not condemning you. I understand as a fellow sufferer of these things to remind our hearts what on earth we are doing. We are coming into the presence of the one before whom all these other concerns fade like dust, We are coming in the name of Jesus with grateful hearts and reverence and awe. May that be what we're like in our worship. But there's one more point I wanted to give you in connection with these principles. Because there's a great, important theme in the Bible that acceptable worship includes, yes, it includes corporate worship. And it includes your everyday lifestyle. And so therefore, one of these themes of the Bible is, yes, do corporate worship with all your heart. And your life surely should try to measure up to that. I mean, listen to the prophets, right? I'm tired of y'all coming into the temple and treating one another like dirt. I don't like your worship like that. It's not acceptable. And so we realize and we, we knew this already. Jesus said, what are, the great, what are the two great commandments? Love. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. You aren't allowed to do just one. If you're doing just one, you're not doing the other. And so we see this here. Look at 13, 1 to 3. I know some of you are like, you can do multiple chapters in one message. Yes, you can, Right? You can. These, the ideas in 13 are connected to the ideas in 12. I know, right? Let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love. It's, just the, it's, the, it's the gospel put into the horizontal, right? If God has made me his child through Jesus Christ, and he's made you his child through Jesus Christ, who are we? Who are we? We're family in an incredible way. We're going to share an unshakable kingdom together. And so our love should be brotherly, familial. To feel like that, a closeness, a care, a, a knowledge, a sharing. Let it continue. What's important about that word continue? It's, it's easy to start with a flash, right? I love you guys so much. You know, six months later, 
let it continue. Keep loving one another like spiritual family. Don't stop. And so you see, what what does acceptable worship include? Love for our brothers and sisters in our church. What did Jesus say? You know this, let's hear it again. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The world does not know you are Jesus' disciple because of the preachers you listen to on the internet. The world does not know you are Jesus' disciples because of how careful you are with your theology. I am not against either of those things. I do them. How does the world know we belong to Jesus? Love for one another. Let brotherly love continue. That's part of our worship. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, he's saying, you guys aren't showing love for each other. You're mocking the Lord's Supper. In how their, their doctrine was okay in that regard. It was how they were treating one another. We've got to love one another. The theme continues, verse two. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. Well, let's go ahead and get at the big question, right? Angels, right? Is that what you're thinking of? So is he saying you guys should totally try to have people over for lunch as much as you can because one day you just might get lucky (laughs) and it won't be these sorry people at your church anymore. It'll be an angel. (laughs) And so therefore, when you have somebody over and you did all that work and then they left, you were like, you know, I tried, but I'm pretty sure there weren't any angels here. (laughs) Is that what he's saying? No way. Hey, this, this is the forgotten command of the modern church. Forgotten command of the modern church. It's in Romans, it's in Peter, it's in Hebrews. It's a qualification for church leadership that we would offer hospitality to one another. It is not entertainment so that you get a five-star review of how beautiful the living room was and how delicious the food was. It's not what this is. And so some of you think, I can't do it because I won't get a good review on my living room and the menu. That's not what it is. It's not what it is. It's an intimate sharing of life with one another for the sake of fellowship and ministry. And yes, it will put your family out in the sense that it takes work and sacrifice. And yes, people will see that. I I know you all believe this about me, that my house is always totally clean. Yeah, some of you, stop. It's not that funny. <laughs> People are going to see your flaws and, 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 the, and the reality of how human you are. And you know what? They'll feel great because they'll realize, oh, they're like me in this way. And, you, and so Christian hospitality is having one another into your life so you can share relationship and encourage one another in Christ, come together as God's spiritual family. And for those who don't know Jesus, it's a way to show the welcome of God himself for the undeserving sinner. I mean, this is the gospel. The Father invites us to his table. Our God is hospitable. And so there's this command, offer hospitality. And in the Greek, it's really stop neglecting to show hospitality. Stop neglecting to show hospitality. Do not refuse the word of him who is speaking. Do you hear his word? Stop. 
Now, you might have questions. How do I do this? I live over here, or I have a that, or I live in this kind of a place. It's not about all the genius of how. It's really not. Take somebody to lunch. Take somebody to coffee. Have a picnic at the park. Share your life. Invite people in. Okay, what about the angels? Well, he's thinking of Genesis, right? And Abraham saw these strangers and invited them in. And in his case, it was angels. It was more than angels. But it connected to the blessing of God on Abraham because Abraham belonged to him. And, and so the idea here is not you might stumble on an actual angel. Listen, let me tell you the truth. Jesus never died for an angel. And it is infinitely a greater honor for you to have a brother or sister in Christ in your living room than it would ever be to have an angel. You are better as far as this goes, more precious than even an angel. The point is, you will experience the blessing of God's work that surprises you. It'll be a surprising blessing for you to do this, both for you and for them. The third verse here is on the same theme. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. I can imagine this. Say somebody you knew at your local church uh, actually was in prison for being a Christian. And you know, the only way they're gonna get what they need for their sustenance is for you and and I to take it to them. But what do the local authorities realize if uh, we do that? We're Christians too. And guess where we might end up? Prison. So you know the temptation. Come on, I got a wife and kids, right? I can't do that because I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid I won't have enough to give. And do you hear what this text is calling from? Love one another even when it's a risk with all compassion. Love one another when it's a risk with all compassion because you're in the body too. Can you imagine what it's like to sit in the cell, not have enough to eat, be cold, feel sick, have nobody take care of you? Think about that. Think about that. You know what that's like too. Remember them. Take care of them. Take the risk. So you see these three verses, what are they all about? You want to offer acceptable worship through Jesus Christ with thanksgiving, reverence, and all? Love one another. Love one another like family, with compassion, and practically. 1 John three seventeen. what does God's word say? If anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, what's the question? How does God's love abide in him? If we refuse to love one another, we're not offering acceptable worship. So what's going to motivate us to offer acceptable worship? Well, you go back to the first part. God has loved you in Jesus Christ. And he has given you an unshakable kingdom. In Christ, you do have enough to grow in loving one another, even when it seems like a risk. Because you have the kingdom. You have the kingdom. So let's sum it up. What a thrill. We can worship God together in a way that's pleasing to him. Here's how it goes. Practical, compassionate, familiar love for one another. Reverent and thankful hearts, all because of 
Jesus. We come to God through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that you would ever be pleased with our worship. I just want to thank you so much for this church and for how we see the fruit of so many of these things in our body. Thank you for thankful people. Thank you for reverent hearts. Thank you for so many of these folks who do show compassionate service and hospitality. Lord, we give you thanks. We take joy that our worship is pleasing to you. We pray that we would grow in this, Lord, that our love for and devotion to Jesus would grow and we would love being his no matter the cost. Always coming to you in his name, what he's done, his life, death, and resurrection. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would be thankful. Help us when times seem hard, Lord, to pursue thankfulness, to set our hearts on you and what you've promised. Lord, help us to be reverent, to never treat you lightly, to be serious about who you are, full of wonder and awe. And Lord, help us, help me, help us to grow in loving one another. Help us, Lord, to be brotherly and sisterly. Help us to show hospitality and help us to compassionately serve even when there's a cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com.